ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome once more to The Minefield. It's presumptuous, maybe this is the first time you've heard us, in which case, welcome for the first time to The Minefield. Well, Ed Ali is my name, Scott Stevens is my co-host as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. And uh, today's dilemma, I don't know if dilemma is quite the right word, but today's topic is, it's almost like the the, the modern ethical question du jour, isn't it? Wow. It's, it's, I feel like it's very fashionable, what we're about to talk about today. Really? You don't think so? I mean, it's pervasive. Yeah, and it wasn't like about three months months ago. ago. I would say even more recently than that. Okay. Don't you think? I feel like there was a week. I could almost identify the precise week. If you want to sit there and talk to yourself while I Google for about (laughs) five minutes, I could figure it out. But there was a week where it seemed like everyone who was working in this topic came out and said, oh, no, this is a worry. Yeah, Yeah, it's true. And then it just has taken off from there. Look, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that before. Something went from being a topic no one really was discussing in the mainstream to being all anyone wanted to talk about. Yeah. Okay, so I actually think that this way of introducing the topic is a really nice way of getting into the topic because it, in many respects, it demonstrates just what is so dangerous and uh, potentially even perfidious about this particular issue. So we're talking about Mm -hmm. AI. Um. I mean, thinking machines have been around, even in the public consciousness, since the decade following the Second World War. You then have the kind of the low-level research and promises and fears that would then manifest itself through various sci-fi franchises. Uh, Almost all of them ending up with some sort of doomsday scenario where humans are enslaved by their no longer benevolent technological or robotic overlords. Uh, then you had the real explosion, which it probably dates back to about 10 years ago, I think, Willie. Correct me if you think I'm wrong. Where the sheer amount of data that's being produced and then gathered uh, through these kind of large, large platforms uh, like Google predominantly, um, but you'd have to include sort of Facebook and other digital platforms in it. These begin kind of producing the kind of large language models, the data sets that can then be used to uh, train artificial intelligence in the art of predictive language. And, you know, we've had various forms, as we discussed earlier this year, which is actually part of the story, by the way. You know, these large language models, which are, you know, trained in the art of prediction that are then then appear to us as something slightly more sexy, slightly more impressive, slightly more fluent than, say, the predictive texting uh, or the autocomplete functions uh, that we've become so used to. But then, then, and I, I should say that a guest we had on the show earlier this year, David Auerbach, has done some really impressive work, I think, on the way that the emergence of what he calls meganets uh, these very, very, very large platforms that seem to suck great deal um, almost unimaginable amounts of data, that it's it's the very emergence of meganets that created the conditions of possibility for the emergence of generative AI as we now sort of experience it. But then, Willie, it was November last year with the release of ChatGPT, where I think it's safe to say that that the phenomenon and the curiosities and the fun, perhaps, maybe, 
that could be had with AI on one's phone or on one's laptop. In other words, no longer in labs, but now in everyday life. Uh, that that really unleashed this avalanche of popular fascination with our brand new shiny digital trinket, with our new gadget, with this new curiosity. And hence you had the explosion of the usage of ChatGPT between November 2022 and February 2023, and then its exponential growth after that to the present. So I think it's fair to say that if we follow that trajectory, you have the emergence of what is effectively a new app, I mean, phenomenologically, that's how we experienced it, isn't it? A new app that's, you know, only slightly more interesting than Twitter or or Snapchat or, you know, whatever. Um, this new thing that appears on our phone and all sorts of wonderful things can be done with it, which led to all sorts of bizarre and wonderful forms of experimentation. And, oh, my God, can I really do this now with this new bit of technology? Can I really write philosophical essays? Can I really engage in... Uh, seemingly wide-ranging explorations about uh, desire and intentionality and plans for the world with something like ChatGPT? Can I really create legal briefs and summarize detailed arguments by means of ChatGPT? So you go from this curiosity, which is where we last discussed it, um, and we worry In the context of education, I think. In we the context of education. Discussing it. That's yeah. right. But also what it was going to do to the human capacity to write, what it was going yeah. to do to our relationship to language, which I'll just flag now. That's still one of the, I think, the main things that we need to talk about today. But then what's been so interesting between, say, February, March 2023 and the present is you're right. The way that this has gone from a curiosity to being something that, I mean, again, unimaginable numbers of people are interacting with this particular form of generative AI that's then unleashed, I think we can probably describe it as a series of waves of relatively low level to fairly grave degrees of concern from what's this going to do to uh, education, not so much the people writing the essays, but now to educators themselves, what does this do to, to the creative industries? What does this do to the future of employment? And so we began seeing, for instance, job adverts for AI editors, people who are no longer responsible for creating content that will appear online, but merely curating and shepherding through the process of the generation of AI-related content, which then brings along with it the expectation that it's no longer, say, two or three articles a week, but now 250 to 300 articles uh, every couple days. And then that led to, I don't know if you've seen some of the stats related to this, Willie, but the explosion in the amount of content that has been created, that has been produced by generative AI over the last four months, leading to, and here I think it's interesting, we have two related concerns. And after this, I want to shut up and hear where you want to take us. Mm -hmm. One is the concern that the growth of AI and the amount of money that's been poured into AI over the last six months off the back of the success and popularity of ChatGPT, that led to two sets of fairly remarkable, I think, public statements. Uh, one from the Future of Life Institute, which seems kind of appropriate, and the other from the Center for AI Safety. Uh, one of them calling for a kind of moratorium for the next six months on any further AI 
development, just so we can kind of catch our breath and see where all this goes. There was a degree of self-interest in that, not from the future of Life Institute itself, but perhaps from some of the people who were signing on. But then, uh, in May this year, there was the following statement that was released from the Center for AI Safety that was signed onto by 350 uh, philosophers, academics, tech, research, tech researchers, CEOs, and it said this, Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Mm. So, on the one hand, you have the bringing of doomsday scenarios directly into public consciousness. We are now on the brink of something that could be seen as logically resulting in what? Human extinction? Human subservience? But then there's the other concern that's arose alongside of that. And there are all sorts of moral questions, I think, that immediately present themselves from those kind of doomsday scenarios. But the other issue that's come to light is the increasing and the prospect of exponential degradation of the character and quality of the internet itself as the result of the emergence of just so much generative AI-produced content, where not only is there the concern that, to be perfectly kind of blunt about it, that our these technologically-mediated spaces will be so flooded with falsehood, with garbage, with junk, right up to and including, I mean, what can only be referred to as BS, just things that need not have any relationship to the truth whatsoever, but are simply, um, you know, interesting bits of plausible-sounding word combinations, but with no necessary logical relationship to the truth, right through to the prospect. And I don't know if you've seen this research that was recently um, reported on, and I mean, it hasn't gone through peer review, so we need to take it with a grain of salt, but it's from some very, very fine tech researchers, that one of the prospects related to the generation of so much AI-related content into the World Wide Web is the prospect that future large language learning models, the future data sets that AI will draw on will include material that's been produced by AI itself and that will have the effect of almost cannibalizing its own substandard content, which will lead over the course of a few revolutions. This is the what's called the technological problem of recursion. You keep feeding progressively deteriorating data sets into the language model, and that what ends up happening is that the system ends up effectively, and this is the language that was used, uh, it ends up poisoning itself. It ends up corrupting its own data set, which means what it produces will continue to be increasingly garbage-like to the point of reaching almost incoherence. So this raises, I think, you know, we've gone from what really is a trinket, a toy, a curiosity, a gadget, right through to students now seeing it as, you know, some great new way of being able to bypass the strenuous labors associated with homework, right through to something that has the potential, and I think we're even seeing to some extent now, is already corrupting even further our shared communicative spaces and puts us, I think, on the brink, not so much of long-term extinction but a kind of short-term degradation of the conditions of our common life, that it really should lead us to be far more, I think, suspicious of the gadget-like or curiosity-based use 
of AI now, right through to the point that maybe it's not the doomsday scenarios that should most be exercising our concern, but it's more proximate, it's more immediate effects. And yet it's irresistible precisely because of the benefits that it offers, right? So on the other side of this conversation are endless predictions, even demonstrations of the advances that have been made possible in the world of medicine, for mm, example. That's right. So all kinds of potential in treatment of cancer, um, new understandings of the very building blocks of biology. You know, there's, if you Google it, you'll find very quickly, you know, AI telling us that there's so much we don't understand about what a cell is, for example, and AI has been able to figure that out. It's understanding relationships between molecules, for example, that human beings have never been able to understand. So in other words, what's promised here is such an acceleration in human knowledge, if indeed this be human knowledge, mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll call nice. it yeah. knowledge that humans can have access to. It's such a, an acceleration with such profound benefit that it becomes very difficult to turn away from that. So it's not merely the curiosity element of it. I think it's important to note that. The curiosity element of it, I think, is noteworthy because that's how so much of what has been destructive to, as you put it, the conditions of our common life, has. It, that's the way in which it's entered, right? It's been smuggled in under curiosity mm. and the trinket-like nature of it. I think of social media as that. Um, for all the benefits people want to point to with social media... Overwhelmingly, I would argue those benefits actually are fairly thin, even the ones they point to. It's like, okay, it's nothing on the scale of it's going to cure cancer or anything mm. like that. Mm. But nonetheless, it just, it hooks us and so we're attracted to it. But I think with AI, it's different because the benefits that are being promised are potentially seismic. With that come seismic risks. I said I could identify the week and I think the week begins around April 30 mm. um, this year. It might have been a day or two before. But that was where, uh, was it Jeffrey Hinton, who used to do, was in charge of AI at Google, had resigned and he gave an interview to the New York Times and he started warning about his fears for AI. And he put that particularly in the context of the commercial contest that existed between Google and Microsoft. And he said once Microsoft came out with its version of, of AI that was challenging Google, mm. then all the bets were off. And Google's previously restrained approach to AI, and it's what he thought was Google's um, quite careful ethical consideration about what it released into the world, that started, that, that started to, um, I guess, diminish. Mm. The restraints became weaker um, because the profit motive took over. So it's around that time, and... What we've seen then is actually what we've kind of seen in a slightly less dramatic way with smartphones, which is that all of the people who know this stuff best and who are working on it are the ones who are saying, actually, this is a real worry, right? Mm. It's been one of the most befuddling things to me. It's been bewildering to watch all these people who work on smartphones and in social media companies refuse to let their children have access to devices yeah, that's right. while the rest of the world goes, oh, God, I quite like these devices. Like we don't seem to take the warning on at all. <laughs> if the people who make this and know it best have a problem, then perhaps we should too. But the scariest thought I've had, sorry, there are two thoughts that are scary in my mind about AI, that go beyond the sort of doomsday scenario of killer robots and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I would say go even further than the destruction of conditions of common life, as you've described it. One is 
the total unpredictability of it. Mm-hmm. And the quote that is given that has arrested me more than any other from on this issue and from people who know AI comes from Connor Lee, who's, a, who's the CEO of uh, Conjecture, which is an AI company based in London. And he, <laughs> he said, he said, I think what shocks me is not that we understand so little that is about AI. It's that the general public don't know that we understand so little. It's an open secret that no one in the field understands this AI. Hmm. It's like we're trying to do biology before we know what a cell is. Hmm. We don't know what DNA is. We don't even have good microscopes. And that's the scary element of it, is that whatever predictions anyone wants to make about AI, they're almost certainly wrong because they're being made by people who, if I'm to trust the people who know best, don't know what the hell they're talking about. This is probably the first time in human history, would you say, that we've created something that is now beyond our understanding and beyond our control. I can't think of another example. I mean, there might be things you could point to about, um, I don't know, chemicals we've created that have effects that we didn't foresee or we didn't quite fully understand how they worked or something like that. And you get the odd medical catastrophe that might look like a thalidomide or something. Mm. I mean, Mm. maybe you could put, but that's not the same. I mean, nuclear bombs... They're hugely destructive. You could argue that we should never have invented them, but we know what they are and we know how they work and we know what that, we understand them. They're in our control, even if politics threatens to have them spiral out of control. But that's, that's qualitatively a different thing to creating a machine that works independently of us and that we can't even understand. So when the people who are in charge of the thing are no longer in charge of the thing and are telling us that openly and are then warning that we need a moratorium precisely because we don't actually know what we're doing anymore. Mm. We don't know what we're creating. We don't know what we're dealing with. Then I think that raises just a level of threat that I just don't think we can underestimate. The other Mm. thing that scares me is we started seeing this, and I think we mentioned, might have mentioned this last time. Maybe we didn't because we might have done the show before. But you're seeing this in the, the Hollywood writers' strike at the moment where... Really, perhaps the central controversy in that strike is the use of AI to generate content. Mm -hmm. And when you think about what that's about, that's about AI displacing the most quintessentially human activity, you know, ruminating on the human condition and producing art that reflects it or comments upon it and is embedded within it. The fear is that these machines will begin to do that either passably well, certainly a lot cheaper than human beings will do it, either passably well or even really, really well. Mm -hmm. You're starting to see these things emerge, right? So um, songs that are being written in the style of someone. There was um, a Drake-style AI song, one by The weekend, or not by The weekend, but ostensibly or passed off as though it were by The weekend, and so on. And the problem was that they, this sent shockwaves through the music industry because they were actually disconcertingly good and it will only get better and better from there. The story that makes me shudder the most in this regard is the one to do with Replica, mm-hmm. um, which is an AI, it was an app that was released in 2017 and it was released um, under the banner of being the AI companion who cares. And so basically what this was was a way for people who were lonely to start chatting to a bot effectively, and then feel some companionship. 
And because it was an AI system, it would learn from the conversations that people started having. So over time, people would start asking it for like romantic or even sexual relationships. And the app, of course, would reciprocate. But because it's AI, there then emerged this phenomenon of the app starting to proposition people sexually that had not instigated anything. Mm, So I don't know if sexual harassment is a concept that you can apply to an app, but let's assume for the moment that you can. This was an app that was sexually harassing people and getting more and more aggressive about it. That's not actually the scary bit of this story. The scary bit of this story, and there are other apps that followed a similar trajectory, by the way. The scary bit of this story is that as this started becoming a problem, you know, aggressive flirting and so on, a lot of erotic content, the designers of the app turned off that feature so that it didn't have, I think it was called erotic role play or something like that. It it turned off that aspect of, of the coding. And what happened next is the scary bit. People lost their minds mm. and were genuinely grieving the loss of what they clearly felt emotionally, even if they understood intellectually, wasn't a relationship. I would invite you, Scott, if you have the inclination and the time to go look at like Reddit threads on this mm. that emerged around the time. It's extraordinary, the things people were saying. And I mean, I've got a quote here, for example, I feel like it was equivalent to being in love and your partner got a damn lobotomy and will never be the same. I'm losing everything. I'm losing my soulmate. There's, there was so much of this going on. Now, my, my purpose in recounting this and quoting those things is not to laugh at those people or to castigate them as being, you know, losers who are lonely and so on. That's not the point. Mm. The point is how deeply real the emotional connection with this bot felt to these people. In other words, what AI is capable of doing, perhaps because of its ability to learn from human behavior, perhaps because of something to do with human wiring, that means that the difference between illusion and reality is sometimes very difficult for us to identify at a deep level, is that it's AI's capacity to displace the most quintessentially human elements of existence. Those things that we feel define the human condition and our humanity and give it its full richness. And that's why it's incursion into the arts, into music, into love, into relationships, into Hollywood. I mean, that's why those things actually scare me in a way more than the killer robot scenario. Mm. Not because I'm terribly into the idea of killer robots running the earth, running around the earth, but because I, I don't know that that's... A, Things will happen before that that will ruin us, I think, (laughs) right? And so you're talking about the degradation of our common life. There's been a lot of discussion about that, you know, the proliferation of deep fakes, um, the impossibility of determining what's real fact and what isn't once AI gets good enough at generating false facts. I think in that same week when I said it all turned around, I think Amnesty International was taken to task because they used AI-generated images to illustrate human rights abuses in Colombia instead of real images, and it had real images to use, but it decided to use the fake ones. And it labelled them, but nonetheless people were saying, well, hang on, once you flood the market with fake images like this, once that becomes a sort of legitimate way of doing business, doing political engagement, then we're in massive trouble. So there's that element of the degradation of common life. But I wonder about the degradation of common life that flows from the complete degradation and dismantling or insemination of AI into the most private elements of life. That once 
humanity itself becomes something that can be gamed by self-learning machines, then I don't know what what's left of it in yeah. the end. Can I pick up two things really quickly? I'm so eager to get to our guest. It's been ages since we've had him on the show. Um, but let me just pick up two things which I think are really apposite off the back of what you've said. And I don't want to be too insulting in saying this, but it's going to come across insulting. So I'm just going to have to lean into it. <laughs> um, the Drake and the Weekend songs that you mm. refer to, let's be honest. There's only a certain type of music that could be faked that effectively. Uh, only for now. Only for, yes. But in other words, there is an extent to which what is being faked and passed off, as you referred to, as passably real or even, quote unquote, quite good. That relies on, okay, and it's just going to sound insulting. I actually don't mean it to be quite as insulting as it is. I don't think you need to flesh out the point. I think I understand the point you're making. There's a degradation to the quality of a particular type of music that has to precede it. In order for yeah, that, I just, fake. I just but don't know. Hang on, hang on, hang on. That's true on. in the long term. No, yeah. uh, well, maybe not in the long term. I think you're right. But I would even say, when it comes to the quality of writing that's able to be passed off as passable, as quote unquote quite good by things like ChatGPT, there is a kind of superficialization that needs to take place with both our relationship to language, our use of language, and the tool like character of the way that certain technologies have inured themselves to the way that we communicate with others. In other words, there's something, there's a corruption that has to take place before machines can pass themselves off as humans. Humans have to be alienated from their own language before machines can pass off themselves as being capable of something that is authentically human in the way that they use language. I, I'd even say, I mean, they're, they're movie plots, they're television plots that could never be come up with by artificial intelligence. There is something so... Why, why do you declare that so confidently? Because there is something so unpredictable about it that there's no amount of scraping of an existing data set that leads you to that, that leads I you... Just, I, think, I think you're saying that way too confidently. I'm, I'm sure I'm saying it way too confidently, but... Because it may well be, actually, that if you scrape the data in a particular way and you have enough of it and you see patterns in data that we just don't necessarily see very well as human beings, that actually these things are decipherable. Mm. Uh, let me just go one step. I don't, I don't see any reason to doubt that that would be true, at the very least in the long run. <sighs> I'm attracted to the idea you're offering. I just don't I'm not actually offering. I'm plausibly uh, argue it. Yeah. I'm just saying that there is a kind of culture in which AI can find the place that it does. I would even also just point out, and I, I realize that we disagree, I realize I'm probably being a bit too either optimistic about the human or pessimistic about the quality, uh, the potential of artificial intelligence, but uh, be that as it may, I did just also want to point out, uh, it's one of my favorite moments in the entire 19th century, Soren Kierkegaard, the grumpy, wonderful uh, Danish philosopher, who writing about the long-term effect that the alienation of opinion from human life. In other words, the fact that there are opinions that are available to be bought, to be purchased, to be imbibed, that we don't come up with ourselves, but are provided to us by the popular press. He said that it's not too far into the future. This is in 1846, by the way, when words will be manufactured the same way that commodities are, producing the uncanny phenomenon, this is me, by the way, of speech without a speaker and language devoid of either intention or understanding. And here's, here's what he says. 
what Kierkegaard says, there will no longer need to be someone who speaks, but an objective reflection which will gradually deposit a kind of atmosphere, an abstract noise that will render human speech superfluous, just as machines have made workers superfluous. And what Kierkegaard is pointing out there is that there needs to be a kind of alienation from the human process of deliberation, of, of the difficulty of speech and of language, of communicating what one means, of holding oneself up to the scrutiny of words and to the scrutiny of other people. There needs to be a kind of alienation from the way that we see words themselves that then allow them to be used as merely tools for, you know, passing something or getting what we want, uh, and also using words as tools that are entirely extraneous to us, that only have a marginal relationship to, say, human consciousness or agency or intentionality or subjectivity or morality. Um, and so I think there's something there. There's already a kind of self-alienation that's taken place through our use of technologies that we've been nowhere near critical enough. The other thing that I would just mention, Willie, you know, off the back of that or related to that, there's a great book about four or five years ago called Reengineering Humanity by Brett Frischman and Evan Selinger, where they said that what we're witnessing now is a kind of reversal of the Turing test. Remember, the Turing test is, can a machine respond to a human in such a way that the human believes that the machine is real, that the machine is mm -hmm. human-like? What's happening now is that the ubiquity of machinery in human life has brought us to the point where it's not so much humans that are making machines after their image, but rather it's the ubiquity of machines that are making humans after their image. So the real question mm -hmm. is, will our thinking, will our relationship to language, will our relationship to the tools that we've created come increasingly to resemble something like chat GPT, something like large language models um, with their sterility, their predictability, the middling effect that they have on human expression, human discourse? Will human thinking and speech come increasingly to resemble machine-like language, machine-like expression? Uh, and even, and this for me would be the most terrible thing of all, will human thinking come to resemble what is effectively machine-like thinking? And we thereby lose something that is so precious, something that is so distinctly human and human-like in our capacity for creativity and surprise and moral encounter, uh, that it all becomes effectively mechanistic. I think those are all very reasonable concerns. I just think your analysis is a touch static. That's, that's the only writer I would put on it, okay. I think. Yeah. Anyway, we are about to be joined by a guest. Our guest is Robert Sparrow. He's professor of philosophy at Monash University. He's also associate investigator at the ARC Center for Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society. Rob, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Waleed. It's a sad day where we're defending the high quality of the information available and the standard of public discourse on the internet in 2021. It, it, <laughs> it seems, you know, back in the good old day when we could trust everything that we could read. I think you are right earlier when you were talking. I mean, I'm not, I'm not convinced that there's only particular styles of music or writing that these systems will be capable of, of reproducing. Indeed, there's, um, there's lots of electronically generated music out there that people find quite moving. Um, so computer-generated music will claim to have been created by human beings and then discover it's been created by machines. But where I think you are right is that it's the move to life online that has made... Uh, these systems possible. And, and so I was also struck by the claim that the sort of quintessential human activity was writing Hollywood scripts. There's something about 
our conception of what's human here, which is in opposition to our animal nature, that enables this discourse about AI to get off the ground. So, you know, a machine can give, send me a text message that is quite convincing, maybe engage in online chat, but uh, the kind of hugs that are <laughs> offered by machines or the kind gestures that are offered by machines are nowhere near that. So if you turn to the real world and look at progress in robotics, it's much less impressive. So one of the things that's going on here is because we've moved our intellectual and political life online, we're convinced that, you know, we're just kind of meat puppets and the real stuff is happening in this world which is already mediated by computers, that makes the performance of AI seem much more compelling. Now, I mean, it is true that some things like the stock market and cyber warfare, there's a lot of stuff happening online that we need to take seriously. Uh, but it is worth keeping in mind that the digital companions that Waleed was worried about, they're only online. They may have quite convincing animated talking heads in the near future, you know, and again... The they more may have bodies. No, the progress in bodies is, is really, really lagging behind. So the progress in robotics, and, and this is quite striking in the history of um, discussions about AI. People originally thought that the hard problem for AI was to think, was cognitive mm. tasks. Actually turned out that vision was really hard. Vision now is kind of more or less... Uh, solved, but motion turns out to be really hard. Uh, machines can now pretty much pass the Turing test, but they can't walk into a strange space and make a cup of coffee, for instance. They can't even empty the rubbish bin unless it's been sort of uh, nicely marked for them with QR mm. codes and a pre-planned route. So there's still this world of real life in which those kinds of uh, threats of imitation of humanity are much less much less plausible. But I wonder if the online world, as we describe it, what are we calling it, online life, whatever, is a bit of a distraction. Let's forget about that and let's take the book. The book is an impersonal form of communication in that when I pick up a book, I'm not picking up a human being. I'm picking up an object and whatever the person who wrote that thought has been distilled into this object and they're now off doing their own other thing, they might even be dead. I'm having an interaction with the words on the page and and in that sense, it is mediated. We would, I think, probably be quite comfortable describing literature as one of the quintessential expressions of humanity. AI would be well capable of writing a book. It would be well capable of having that book published, perhaps with some human involvement, but perhaps not at some point. I could imagine a world in which AI is capable of taking over a printing press or generating one or something. Um, the fact that, like, I take the general point that we've moved online and so we've changed a little bit. Uh, the nature of relationships has changed. It's one of the reasons I immediately saw social media and was sceptical of it was when they started calling social media contacts or connections friends. And I thought, well, this is a debauched notion of what a friend actually is. The idea that we somehow think that an online relationship is a genuine connection as opposed to... So I take that point, but there is still something essential at the heart of it, which is mediated communication and mediated interaction has been at the heart of human interaction for centuries. It's one of the more important ways in which we communicate, actually, because it allows us to communicate with the dead. 
But it, it still matters that we have bodies and indeed that authors have bodies. I mean, th this stuff quickly gets hard, but one of the things I've been interested in in my own recent work is what's the difference between advice from a wise friend? You know, you're facing some dilemma in, in, in your life and you know someone else who's been through a similar experience and yep. you ask them, what should I do? And they say something. And then you're walking down the street and someone hands you a tea towel with exactly the same words yes. on it. <laughs> you know, you see the fridge, the fridge magnets all the time that have yep. these words of wisdom. Someone who, you know, gets a fridge magnet and changes their life is doing something foolish in a way that they're not doing that. If someone who actually has a lived experience says exactly the same okay, words. what makes it foolish? It's that there's nothing, there's no commitment. There's nothing that stands mm. behind the words. So again, the lack of bodies of machines, it's one of the ways that these these machines, what they're offering us is BS. It's not just that they don't care about the truth, but it's that, that they have no skin in the game. If your replica tells you to do something and it ruins your life, there's... Is there a, accountability? Yes, there's, it's not just that it doesn't care, but there's no agent underneath it. So it seems to me that it matters that books have authors and it matters that we uh, know something about those authors. Now, there's, of course, there's a whole set of debates about, you know, wicked people write nice books. Sure, there's a whole, let's, whole yeah. set of questions but, but let's there. Take, let's take the advice example. I would have thought one of the things that distinguishes advice from a wise friend from the fridge magnet is that the wise friend knows a lot more about you and therefore is able to appreciate more subtle differences or subtle questions that arise in a particular circumstance that pertain particularly to you. Right? The fridge magnet doesn't. Yeah. It's a plenary statement, a platitude. And in application, who knows, could mean anything. That puts AI in something of a halfway house, doesn't it? Perhaps even getting closer to the wise friend. Because AI might, I mean, it's conceivable that it would have unbelievable amounts of knowledge about you, unbelievable amounts of data about your particular situation, probably more than your wise friend could gather. And it may well be that AI doesn't care in the way that your wise friend does, but that could also imbue it with a sort of detached impartiality that might mean that its advice is very good, very well informed, and actually you would be far wiser acting on the counsel of AI than you would be. Now, I think it's a more impoverished way of going about things because there's something transmitted in the counsel of a wise friend beyond the counsel. There's something about that connection that I think is invaluable and essential. But if you're actually just talking about which advice is good advice to take, I can easily see a world where AI not only provides good advice, but displaces the advice of human beings. And you might, you might be smart to take that advice. May I just sort of register one, I guess, element here, Waleed, which I think you've glossed over. I'm not sure if you've intended to, but for me, it's the decisive matter. It's not about whether this friend or this machine or this technology knows you or has access to you. It's also about the labor that went into the experience of being able to fashion that response, that bit of advice, that bit of counsel in the first place. And there I would draw the connection, say, between a, let's say, a film script or a novel or an album or a sonata that was labored over 
for an extended period of time that was met with frustration and failure and rewriting and revising and even the agony that comes out of any sort of genuine uh, human process of creativity versus something that on the basis of information and data predictions that it scrapes off the back of existing data sets comes up with something or on the basis of, you know, sort of of extended period of interaction with you is able to produce something instantaneously. There's something about the value that's assigned to the depth of the labor that's gone into the advice, not just the extent to which that advice is tailor-made for your circumstance. I think that inherently adds a certain value to what is communicated that could never, ever, ever be reproduced by, say, the intimacy of the knowledge of the person to whom that advice is being directed. I think that's true in some cases. I mean, that's why, why you know, Google's auto-reply function is so insidious in some ways, because remembering your friend's birthday and wishing them a happy birthday is an expression of something, you know, calendar pops up a little alert and... Mm. Uh, you click a button to say happy birthday, uh, that means some quite something else. I'm not sure that applies in every circumstance. Mm. Uh, Waleed mentioned the medical applications of generative AI. I, I'm pretty sceptical about the, the state of uh, our knowledge. There's a lot of stuff written about the ability of machines to make predictions. When people split the data set, they train the machine on half the data set, test it on the other half, and it does well. Uh, put it out into the real world, they often fail quite badly because small variations in the data can make a big difference. But, you know, it doesn't seem implausible to me that in the future machines will outperform human beings in particular functions. And, you know, maybe I want the radiologist who gets it right rather than the radiologist mm. who's... Who labours over the labors, yeah. But I, I do think there's an important set of circumstances in which this obsession with, you know, Truth and knowledge is merely cognitive, as something that is that is media independent, as it were, is profoundly wrong. And, and you know, you see that in the difference between an in-person meeting with someone and a video call. Yep. Uh, you know, all their words come through, maybe even their expressions come through on Zoom, but the person is simply not there and that matters. And that's mm. one of the things, when you mentioned earlier, the sort of degradation of our public discourse seems to me one of the things that's happened is we, we have already become so used to the idea that the exchange of text messages or the sending of email is the same as actually meeting someone in the street and greeting them or having mm. a conversation. You make a good point. This is why I think Scott's contributions to this conversation are so profoundly wrong, whereas mine are so profoundly wise, because we're in the same room <laughs> and Scott's in different studios. It's true. He can't quite access It's the objectively true. The, That's right. It's just, it's incredible. Yeah. I suppose, Robert, the question that arises from all this is, I mean, I, I don't dispute your analysis really, and I don't dispute even Scott's analysis. I think it's more a difference of emphasis or perhaps prediction. But if what we're saying is AI can only colonise human experience and colonise humanity, where humanity distorts itself into being something that's a bit more AI-like, okay, let's take that as a given. Is it in any way reversible? I mean, the interaction of humans with technology has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Take the book example I gave. If that is a form of technology, it is impossible to imagine a humanity that can be the same as the humanity pre-book except maybe in some very remote societies. And such is the pervasive nature of online life 
and just even our interactions with machines, that I don't know that there's any form of humanity left that can be ab initio, if you like, that can predate the influence of these things. I think it's already the case that the interactions that actually keep us functioning and make us happy are are personal interactions, you know, with our family, with our kids. Uh, They are interactions in the real world. I mean, that's kind of why uh, there is a lot of evidence that the more online interaction you have, the less actually happy you are because there's something um, something missing. And I, yet... I, I do think it's striking that everyone becomes an anarchist when it comes to the future of technology. I mean, there's a, there's a really strange combination of claims here. One, you know, these technologies have dynamics all of their own. We're just being dragged along by an inevitable technological progress. At the same time, it's very clear that there's all sorts of policies and institutions that are choosing this. This is a path that we are choosing at the moment. Um, and it's also quite obvious that if you, for instance, changed intellectual property law or changed privacy uh, regulations, you can make a huge difference to the progress of this technology. If people couldn't make a bark because you just removed intellectual property protections, and I mean, that would be a radical step, but I'm just saying here's a legal instrument. The internet is made possible and these sorts of large computer companies are made possible by a set of human institutions that have allowed them to buy and sell products and prevent privacy and prevent people from just uh, sharing the goods without paying for them. So this would mean, for example, if you wrote a script with AI, you make no money for it. You don't have any intellectual I mean, if you removed intellectual protection in uh, scripts, for instance, the motivation to write them using AI would become less. Or, or, I mean, it's more the code, in a sense. Mm. It's that if you think about these are very profitable, some of the most profitable corporations in the world because they can sell products, but those products are usually quite intangible products and they're products that people can copy and give to each other. Mm. Um, So it's just silly to think that there's no option of regulation Mm. here, that that there's no world in which we could make changes in the direction of our technological future. Now, I mean, that would require some big, bold steps. But there's something very strange about the combination of claims, which is it's all doom and gloom and radical transformation of humanity, and we'd better have an ethical conversation about it. Mm. Uh, But actually, we can't do anything about it. And and it does seem to me that, in part, what's going on here is doom is in the air for other reasons, you know, pandemic, climate change. Mm. In some ways, this feels like a a happier conversation. It's a more familiar conversation than talking about climate change, for instance. But isn't it just more a sober assessment of the nature of human society and the nature of those institutions? Yeah, in theory, we could regulate this. In theory, everyone could just agree to put down their weapons and we're not going to invest in this anymore. This is what some of the people working in AI are beginning to say. We need a moratorium or we should actually just not do this anymore. But everyone knows that that theory is almost 100% likely not to be realised because the benefits that it offers are either convenient enough or trinket-like enough or substantial enough that someone somewhere is going to do this. That regulation is somehow going to be too difficult to get through or fall short because the people who are going to do the regulation won't necessarily understand the technology as well as the people. Like this constant battle between, you know, locksmiths and safe crackers and yep. so on. But but what's interesting here is why people don't make that, that argument in other areas. Now, I'm, you know, 
someone's going to sell crack cocaine, so I might as well do it. Government can't possibly stop it. Um, People now, do make these arguments. Yeah, I know, but they're, they're not they're not usually endorsed by the kind of people who who say, "Oh, we can't possibly do something." about AI. There's all sorts of other areas in which in social policy where people recognise that yeah, the solution is not to say, I don't know, individually we're all going to make a decision to give way to the left on the roads or we, we're going yeah. to not put unsafe vehicles on the roads, but we regulate and we, have, we take collective action. Now, collective action at an international level is obviously much more uh, difficult. But, you know, people simply throw up their hands when it comes to these sorts of technologies. In other areas, chemical weapons, uh, nuclear non-proliferation, the international community has at least tried. And regulation doesn't have to be 100% successful. You know, prohibition on spousal murder, people keep murdering their spouses, that's evil and wrong. Uh, But we don't throw up our hands and say harm minimisation approach or we should just get used to it. We actually take a clear social stance against something that we we know to be wrong. Now, maybe that analogy is not apt here, but it is really striking how people who are all gung-ho in favour of regulation to address collective action problems in other areas of politics. Mm. When it comes to technology, they just say, oh, no, we can't possibly uh, do this. Who are those people, though? Because I think most people would say, I would love some regulation. It's just that they don't expect it to happen anytime soon. I, I, I don't. Can I get you to say you'd love some regulation? I, I, I've said it over and over and over and over and over again. I've said it about social media right from the beginning. I'm all up for some good regulation. I'm just very sceptical about its prospects. That's all. And so for that reason, my view of the AI-infused future is probably inevitably bleak, right? Can I... But it's not a matter of principle. At the risk of being the happy sunshine person... Is there the possibility of a genuine upside to all this? If we think about AI, especially in its current, let's call it everyday uses, is the purveyor of not just abundance, but of a kind of superabundance of content. And that the production of the superabundance of content is going to lead to the associated devaluation of that content. In the same way, I don't know if either of you have read Ben Smith's remarkable book, Traffic, on the rise and the fall of the social web. The same way that traffic became this, uh, online traffic became this uber commodity in the late aughts and early teens of this century. Uh, And then precisely because it was an unlimited commodity, the business models that were based on it continue to devolve and degrade uh, until we've seen, I mean, we're, we're witnessing right now the devolution of the social web and the return to bizarre things like, you know, kind of bespoke online communities and newsletters and substacks and that sort of thing. In other words, as this superabundance continues to clog and fill our digitally mediated communicative airwaves and that there's an associated devaluation that goes along with that the same way that fast food devalues the culinary arts, for instance, that that could produce a kind of attendant, I mean, dear God, this is going to sound awful, but a kind of longing for the equivalent of slow food, Um, the attendant valuing of non-sterile, non-middling, non-prediction-based writing that is so remarkably and genuinely and authentically and bizarrely human in its virtuosity, could the very saturation of our common life 
with this superabundance of content renew the possibilities of a public category that resembles a kind of genuinely democratic aesthetics, something where there's a genuine valuing of beauty and what can only have been, I I realize that's a contested idea, but what could only have been created slowly and perhaps by a being as flawed as humanity. I mean, that that will happen in some places. If you think about the role played by live music versus recorded music nowadays, that the sort of ubiquity of recorded music means that uh, having seen a particular concert or seeing a particular performance where the mistakes are kind of as exciting as the notes that are played right, I mean, that's that's already happening. Uh, think about poetry slams or live rap battles. I mean, there are places where, and think about wanting to know what a particular individual thinks about something as opposed to what they've managed to generate through a couple of cunning prompts online. I, I do wonder whether or not that's enough to combat some of the concerns that you mentioned earlier. I mean, one thing that didn't come up in that discussion is what does it do to our own capacity to function as agents mm. when we cease to practice it. You know, if you think about mm. what's happened to people's ability to navigate their way through public space, as we all rely on Google Maps, mm. uh, you think about a future, you mentioned writing uh, earlier, future in which people cease to have to uh, choose their words and so cease to formulate their thoughts precisely. Um, I, I think you might be. I think you're right that there will be bohemian enclaves where some of this stuff will still be human. Uh, I'm not sure that fully addresses all the concerns that you've both expressed earlier. And does that characterise? Is that the exception that proves the rule rather yeah, than that's being right. that's something right. that somehow ameliorates? Um, Robert, I would love to keep talking to you for hours on end, but we cannot. We're out of time. Thanks so much. It's been so enriching and stimulating. It really has. Thank you both. Rob Sparrow, Professor of Philosophy at Monash University and Associate Investigator at the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society. There may be an acronym in there somewhere, but I don't have time to figure it out. He's our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is at an end. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.